Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Stop punishing yourself with bland, chalky protein shakes and fuel your fitness with the best protein in the game at GNC. We've got the hottest brands and flavors that legit taste like cookies, your favorite cereal, indulgent desserts, and more. It's on at GNC. Standard issue for all women. Welcome to episode 221 of the Standard Issue Podcast. I'm Hannah Dunleavy and today I got Wurgle in one guess. I mean that is incredible because I've actually done today's... Oh no, I did Wordle, sorry. Can't contribute Yeah, just to be clear, Wurgle is the six letter one. So there are slightly fewer words with six letters than there are with five letters. And I'm not claiming I am amazing, but you know I like gambling. You know I like odds. And the odds of getting it first time are incredible. What was it? Well, I can say, because you don't do it, it was Forest. A good one to choose, Hannah. There's a couple of vowels in there, some consonants, you know, some good letters to to throw in there. I played Wordle today, which I don't do that often, but I saw Jess Fosterkey tweeting about it. And she had two letters she had like the the second and the fourth letter or whatever yeah the whole way down and she didn't get it and i had the other letters the whole way down and then i did eventually get it humble brag let me see because i actually did that today as well i got it in the last go but i had like different letters to her and i thought if only jess if only we'd collaborated on, on today i got it in four it was booze it was booze correct hannah yeah. Do you think my family history would mean that would be the one I would guess in one go? <laughs> I think that's quite a hard guess. Yeah. You'd never guess that in one go because it's, A, it's got two of the same letter in it. That would be a foolish first guess, wouldn't it? I did put it on Twitter that I'd got it in one guess. I and I don't, I'm not one of those people that ever put their result up, but I felt like I just like to, to give people hope. I am a lot better at hurdle than I am at wordle. I'm very good at mm, hurdle. Interesting. Very good. I can quite often get it in the first second. I tell you what's really good is global. And it's where you have to, you say a country and it shows you on a map. And I have to say all of that huge mass of Afghanistan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan. I know where they all are now. It has actually helped me. I think my understanding of where specific places are, where I wouldn't have been able to identify what was near. I mean, I'd be dog shit at that. Absolutely dog shit. No, that's what I'm saying. Play it, because then you'll get better okay. at it. Well, top, top tip today. Just out of interest, uh, hurdle today, I was like, that sounds like bollocks. What's that? I think that's Lincoln Park. It was. Well done. I'm Jen Offord, and I'm nearly 40. Wowzers. Yeah. When is that? I know when it is, but for our listeners. Oh, for the listeners, it's September the 15th, the same day as Prince Harry. More on him later. Which is Thursday. It is Thursday, yes. So if you're listening on Wednesday, it's my birthday tomorrow. Yeah, I just want people to send you messages, Jen. Thank you. That's kind, Hannah. I do actually know when your birthday is. This isn't some cunning ploy. <laughs> no, I know. I know. 
Coming up, I chat to the winner of the 2021 Great British Sewing Bee, Serena Baker, about sewing, sustainable fashion and her new book, Serena Sews. I chat to actress Jennifer Kirby about her new TV series, Vampire Academy, and why teenage girls are so fascinated by the old neck biters. Sex, in it? I did ask her whether she was a, an angel or a spike girl, obviously. Ooh. I say girl because she would have been a girl at the time. And you can find out her answer if you keep I can listening. say, we'll have to, I'll have to listen to find out. I wanted to ask you what the answer was and I realised that's not very good for <laughs> encouraging further listening. Yeah. I was Angel, by the way, but you knew that. You're totally wrong. <laughs> it's good news galore in Jenny Off The Blocks, which is just as well as we rate or date LA Confidential. You are going to have to try very hard to justify that statement to me, Jen. But first... The Queen is dead. Long live the King Singers. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where Britain just got weirder than Liz Truss's curtsy. Mm. So, as the entire world is aware, last week Queen Elizabeth II died at Balmoral at the age of 96. The BBC could have at least fucking mentioned it, <laughs> right? Oh. I don't know about you, Jen. But I made what I thought was a very sensible decision to stay away from social media for a few days because such events bring out the absolute worst in everyone. But alas, I have read quite a lot of the inexplicable thoughts tumbling out of people's brains and onto Twitter because everybody kept sending them to me. Thanks, people in my WhatsApp groups. (laughs) How um, did you succeed in steering clear of Twitter, Jen? No, not quite. Unfortunately, I mean, I most I did mostly stick with it because uh, you're quite right. It does bring out the worst in literally everyone. As ever, it provides proof that just because we have opinions, we don't always need to voice them. Hmm? I have opinions. I, I, I've kept quite a lot of them to myself this weekend. Yeah. And I've definitely unfollowed a few people this weekend as well. I find some of the takes I've read to be baffling. And occasionally pretty monstrous, actually. Yeah. Then again, perhaps some of these opinions wouldn't be voiced with such gusto if any of the mainstream coverage had any nuance or diversity in opinion. Yes, ironic, isn't it? That the BBC's given itself hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of airtime to fill and yet can't talk about the sheer amount of batshit that's going on, which could fill schedules until Christmas. So I thought we could talk about some of the highlights of the last week here. And by that, I 100% do not mean highlights. (laughs) I mean, I'm no royal correspondent, but in truth, if the last few days have shown anything, it's that royal correspondents know no more than your average Joe. They just say it in a really obsequious voice. Now, granted, I didn't watch everything that's been aired since Thursday, but everything I saw involved a royal reporter answering questions with either wild speculation or the statement, I wouldn't like to speculate. Mm -hmm. Maybe they'd have been better spending some time explaining to people, and I hate to single out one group, but yes, it's you Americans who don't know what a constitutional (laughs) monarchy actually is. Because there seems to be people out there that think the Queen has been running the country for 70 years. Mm. Special shout out to the guy who called Brits scumbags because of what the royal family did to an ancestor who left Ireland during the potato famine. 
Yep, children of immigrants from Asia, the Caribbean and Africa. He's talking to you and to me, one of the approximately 10% of the UK population who is more Irish than he is. Elsewhere, the Premier League and English Football League cancelled matches over the weekend in honour of the Queen, while other sports soldiered on. Rugby, cricket, Formula One and horse racing were among the individual sports to continue with scheduled fixtures, leading to something of a row over what was the proper thing to do. And I guess I can see both sides. On one hand, football is, after all, the national sport. The Queen was a patron of football and Prince William is the chair of the Football Association. And in fact, one of the things I've enjoyed about the last week is seeing the evidence of the life well lived that King Charles, which is quite weird to say, spoke of in his national address, that there are pictures and footage of her across all industries and events, such as handing over the Jules Rimet to England's 1966 World Cup winners. On the other hand, not everyone wants to focus solely on this one thing, no matter how significant it may be even to them. Some people want to be distracted, some people aren't interested, and football is an industry supported hugely by freelancers and other low earners who will see lighter bank accounts this month. I can also see the cases made by each and every one of those camps. You know who they should have asked, Jen? Who? The long-dead Princess Diana, who it appears can be brought into any argument as proof of anything, provided you say it with enough confidence that you know exactly what she would think of, insert talking point here. Interestingly, when she does make her views clear to Beryl of Basingstoke or Mary Jo from Maryland, she says exactly the same thing as they think. It's uncanny. Even if it does make her somewhat inconsistent when you look at everything that she is telling everybody. And talking of inconsistent, don't even get me started with the huge amount of people who seem to simultaneously believe that the monarchy is a rotten institution that should be got rid of. And let me just say, I'm not against that argument. But at the same time, also seem delighted that Harry's children just got a royal title and edge closer to the crown. Make your minds up, people. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's baffling, isn't it? Sport wasn't the only area to down tools as a mark of respect or up tools in this case. Planned strikes across the rail network as well as Royal Mail were cancelled this week. And I can understand why planned rail strikes might be cancelled with two days of strikes that were due over the four days the Queen is to lie in state. And many thousands of people thought to be travelling into London to pay their respects. I do find it slightly strange, though, that strikes in industries with no direct impact on those days of national morning should be cancelled however as if all other conversations should be halted i suppose maybe there are people if you go on strike you want to be on the picket line that's what you should do if you're on strike and maybe those people want to go and pay their respects maybe i don't know i can't, I can't relate <laughs> <laughs> we do no me neither but we do tend to sort of try and guess there's one group of people who like the queen and that they don't venn diagram with any of the other groups yeah. of people that we're talking about yeah i mean that is that is an interesting thought hence you end up with white americans assuming that everyone in britain is white yeah. but anyway moving on 
Well, speaking of those hushed up conversations, if you scroll right to the bottom of the BBC News homepage this morning, because we, we come full circle here, which for us is Monday, as you know, you'll see a headline about how new Prime Minister Liz Truss has been criticised for sacking Sir Tom Scholar, the top official at the Treasury. The reason for this, apparently, is that the incoming Chancellor, Kwasi Kwarteng, wants new leadership. A word to the uninitiated civil servants are apolitical and not supposed to be selected by politicians. Nowhere on the Beeb's homepage today will you find coverage of how Sky News mistakenly suggested crowds gathering to protest last week's fatal shooting by the police of Chris Carber, an unarmed 24-year-old black man, were royal well-wishers. So, Jen, all of this said, what's what's been your overriding feeling about the death of the Queen? Do you know what's interesting? Because I realised that I said things in that bit just now that will have made me sound both like a staunch royalist and not at all. I do feel more emotional than I would have imagined I might feel. I'm surprised at how unsettling I find it. But I think this is a thing we've talked about before, is that she has been a constant in all of our lives. Yeah. Which is like comforting or, or what? maybe not comforting, but there's like a status quo that you're, it's familiar. Do you know what I mean? I'll tell you something that I said in an interview that I did on Thursday morning about an hour before we found out she was dying and that interview may or may never run now. I spoke to Marion Bailey, the actress, about playing the Queen. Mm in a play that is opening at the Kiln Theatre. Hopefully, at some point, I'll get to that interview and take everything we couldn't say now out. But up until I was about 15, the only person I'd ever associated the words Prime Minister with were Margaret Thatcher. And I remember the first time I heard the words Prime Minister and saw a photograph of John Major, I thought, well, that's not right. And then the same thing happened again when I was in my late 20s because the only person I'd ever associated the words the Pope with were John Paul II. And every time I saw a picture of Pope Benedict, I was like, that's not the Pope because your brain is just used to it. Now, 48 years old I am now and the stamps have always had her face on, money's always had her face on, all of that stuff. So I think that actually from that point of view, it is jarring regardless of whether or not you actually are a fan of the monarchy. I am not a fan of the monarchy. I currently think that now isn't the right time to be having a conversation about the monarchy, though, because everybody is being a bit vicious and it just doesn't seem that a conversation we had now would be productive in any way. No, I mean, no, I agree with you. I'm not I'm not anti the monarchy, as you know, Hannah. I'm not really for them either. I don't really care one way or the other, to be honest. I'm pretty ambivalent. I quite like the pomp and tradition I sort of enjoy that as someone who's sort of you know has an interest in history or whatever I know you do too you do as well but just that's just personally where I stand on it I think if we're talking about net returns they make us more money than they cost us so as much as the hereditary Mm. angle of it is not what I agree with in principle I don't I can't find a compelling case from that respect for saying get rid of them so yeah, I don't I don't really have any feelings one way or the other, but I just I find like I someone on Twitter said to me the other day, "Oh, well, how do you feel about her paying 12 million pounds to get her son out of trouble for you know, being friends with Epstein or whatever?" So, like, well, obviously I feel bad about that, but I think that the problem with Twitter and the problem with all of this is that that more than one thing can be true at the same time, can't it? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I agree on the history front. I did watch Prince Charles's speech because I thought, you know what, in years to come, 
Mm. Because there are speeches made by members of the royal family that I could tell you almost off by heart, not because I'm a royalist, but because they are are of such historical value that I've heard them hundreds of times. Mm. You know, like the speech that, that King Edward gave when he gave up the crown and he did that whole, I would not be able to lead as I wanted to. That I could do almost off by heart Mm. because I've heard it so many times. So actually that is a historical document and I wanted to watch it in real time as it was happening. Not because I care about the monarchy, not because of any of those things. I will probably watch her funeral because I don't know what the future holds and I don't know whether I'll ever see another monarch's funeral again. So why would I not watch it? Exactly. I am able to differentiate between what is historical and what is morally correct, I think. Yeah. I've got reasons to be, historical reasons to be furious about how my ancestors were treated. You're Irish, aren't you? Well, exactly. And during the potato famine, my family were up in Mayo and down in Cork, two of the worst affected places by the famine. But my point is... I blame Trevelyan for that, (laughs) the government for that. Well, it's quite a long time ago as well, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? I don't want the royal family to be able to mess around in our politics. That's the last fucking thing I want. So how can I blame them for anything that happens in politics? I can't. I don't know. I mean, I guess maybe I would feel differently about this if I wasn't from, you know, basically a purely British... I mean, you know, I've got Welsh and Scottish in my family, which... Well, the Welsh and Scottish have got their reasons. Well, of course, absolutely. But I do consider myself to be English, primarily, because I am. So maybe I would feel differently. But what I will say, actually, me and my mum actually did go yesterday to watch the Mayor of Harwich proclaim the new king. Partly because we were like, well, it's history, right? So we should go and like yeah. do this because it's historical. And partly because mm. we were a bit curious and we wanted to have a nose and see who else was there. Cause... Yeah. Also because there's something faintly ludicrous exactly. about things like that. Exactly. That you're just like, why are they wearing those stupid things? <laughs> They've all got their special hat on. And yeah. There's a guy who used to be a teacher at my primary school who's now like the Lord Lieutenant of Harwich or something. And that he's got a fucking sword and he's there like, listen to blah, 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 blah. And you're like, this is <laughs> mental. But like also yeah. at the same time, I almost did an involuntary like, <laughs> like, like weird cry <laughs> thing because it felt like a bit emotional and, and, and whatever. But what I will say that something that really struck me during King Charles's address was that I really get the sense when they speak, members of the royal family, I really get the sense, rightly or wrongly, that they believe that they work for us. I genuinely believe that they believe that they do a service to us, right? And you can, like, Mm. absolutely 100% disagree that they do. But I think that they believe that. And the thing that struck me about that is that I have not thought for at least five years that any of our government have felt like they work for us. Yeah. Make of that what you will. I will. So before we finish BT, I just want to mention one more thing, you know, because things aren't appearing much on the news at the minute. And that is the ongoing crisis in Pakistan, where the government is struggling to cope with food shortages following months of floods, which have killed nearly 1,400 people. I'm sure many of you will have seen the devastating photographs of the country taken from space at the end of August, which showed around a third of its landmass underwater. 
More than 660,000 people are living at relief camps and in makeshift accommodation after floods damaged their homes. The United Nations General Secretary, Antonio Guterres, visited several areas of Pakistan at the weekend. The Pakistani government, led by Prime Minister Shabazz Sharif, says the lives of nearly 33 million people have been disrupted and estimated that £26 billion of damage has been done. Both Sharif... And Guterres have blamed the flooding on climate breakdown. If you do want to do something helpful, you can visit the Disasters Emergency Committee at dec.org.uk and pledge them some cash. More news next time. I'm joined by the 2021 winner of The Great British Sewing Bee and author of new book, Serena Sews, How to Make Beautiful, Interchangeable, Sustainable and Unique Clothes, Serena Baker. Hello, Serena. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's nice to be here. Lots to talk about because anyone who listens to the podcast regularly knows that I have recently taken up sewing or I guess like dressmaking is probably the the correct term myself. So I've got lots of questions, but um, <laughs> could you first of all tell me a little bit about the book? The book was a, a really big project for me last year. Um, it sort of came about after the Sewing Bee was on TV and I spoke to the, the publishers quite a lot about different ideas about what I wanted to put in it. And um, I sort of settled on wanting to try and have a bit of something for everyone. So people who haven't tried sewing before, can um, get into it like learn the basic skills they need but also there would be projects of like different um, difficulties for people who have done sewing before and just want to try out different patterns and um, maybe liked my style or something and I also wanted to make sure I had a bit of a focus on doing upcycling and refashioning because that's been quite a big focus of my sewing for the past few years so I wanted to get that across as well and show people how they can do it themselves because sometimes it's a very different way of sewing and so I wanted to kind of exemplify how how you can go about doing that so that people can can learn that as well. It sort of strikes me in the book that it's kind of like a you can basically start at the start and and work your way through it if you're an absolute beginner. Yeah yeah yeah. Because I am an absolute beginner. I have to say the pattern cutting sort of scares mm. the shit out of me is that a bit more advanced yeah. <laughs> or is that is that am I more scared than I should be I think patterns can be very intimidating and it's definitely something I was intimidated by when I started sewing and I think a lot of people are so it's <laughs> it's very normal so all of the the projects in the book are made using only pattern blocks so this basically pattern blocks are like the most basic form of a sewing pattern so there's a bodice block and a sleeve block and all of the book projects come from that so they come from adjusting the pattern blocks and adding design details and I show you how to do that in step-by-step instructions. I hoped it was a way to teach people about patterns at the same time as them using them if that makes sense. <laughs> Because I think patterns can be very confusing. And when you see a big pattern sheet and all the lines are like overlapping and there's different sizes, it's a bit overwhelming. So I hoped this way of doing it sort of stripped things back to the basic pattern block and then you can build it up in steps. And as you say, there are chapters in the books where I focus on like one design element and like throughout the chapter there's multiple projects so that like increase in difficulty and like add 
pattern design elements um, onto each other. So you can, can sort of work through the projects in a step-by-step manner as such if you are a beginner. I wanted to ask you, because you're 22 years old and you are the youngest ever winner of the Great British Sewing Bee. And I mm. think some people maybe associate sewing and dressmaking oh, and, and like craft <laughs> stuff in general, really, with, I don't yeah. know, more mature people, shall we say. Mm. How did you come to take up sewing in the first place and how did you get so good at it you must have dedicated quite a lot of time to it I started when I was 15 and I'm 20 I'm 23 now so been doing it for um eight years Mm -hmm. and I actually started when I was going through a bit of a bit of a rough time like my parents were separating basically so I sort of threw myself into sewing as a bit of a distraction and I also really loved it because it was creative and it was a very satisfying hobby for me because you get an end product. I mean, at the start, I didn't really love the things I made because I didn't make them very well. <laughs> but you still like have something to show for it as such. So mm. I think it's a very rewarding hobby. And for me, you know, when I started, it obviously acted as a bit of escapism from stuff that was happening. And now I do it alongside my medical degree. And even now, like when I sew, I sort of switch off from everything else. So it's a way for me to like de-stress from things and not have to worry about other things that are going on and my degree and everything. So I think that's why I love dedicating so much time to it because it acts as that escapism for me. And I also am bit of a perfectionist and like learning new skills and stuff so I like testing myself with different techniques. <laughs> I find it quite relaxing apart from when I'm shouting at the pattern because I don't understand what the instructions yeah. are telling me to do. <laughs> it's relaxing and can be very frustrating at mm. the same time. I think it's become more relaxing the more I've done it and the more experienced I've got obviously. At the start I made a lot of mistakes and was very like overwhelmed and a bit frustrated with stuff but I still managed to really enjoy it despite that. So I think that made me stick it out. (laughs) Do you make all of your own clothes now or do you still buy other stuff? I don't. I did try and um, challenge myself for a while to not buy anything new or to either make my stuff or buy it secondhand. This was sort of when I was becoming a lot more aware of like fast fashion and the impacts mm. that has and I think that ties in a lot to to sewing so I wanted to like use my sewing to help me make more sustainable fashion choices um but I just don't have the time to make all of my own stuff mm. <laughs> I'm sure you are finding out starting sewing it takes a lot of time to mm. make things not only the physical sewing but all the preparation and stuff like doing the oh, pattern it's the worst like bit isn't it sourcing fabrics yeah so I feel like you've done half of the work before you even start sewing a lot of the time. Um, so it's always nice when you actually get to start sewing process of a project. I know I would love to make all my own clothes, but realistically, I don't have the time. But I do try and buy secondhand um, when I can um, and often will like upcycle things or refashion them or like um, I can adjust them to fit me a bit better as well. That's one of the really good things about being able to sew. Yeah. Well, I wanted to ask you what you thought the main advantages of making your own clothes are. Because one of the things I thought about is that you know where they're coming from. So you, you know that your clothes mm. are not being made in some like terrible sweatshop yeah. somewhere, for example. But I suppose you don't really know where your fabric is coming from. I imagine you come up yeah. against the same things. How can you ensure that the fabric that you use is sort of ethically produced? Is there a way of doing that? I'm not an expert in like sustainable fabrics and things. There's just, there's so many. Mm. 
and again that's quite overwhelming and sometimes you're right it is really hard to know you go into a fabric shop or you shop online and there's no information about where it's been sourced from but there are certain like certificates that fabrics can get that shown they're maybe like organic you know they're like not been made using loads of pesticides and things like that but it's hard to know about the manual labor that goes into it and so that's also why I started going more into like refashioning things instead because then you you do know where your stuff has come from mm. like if you could buy things or even use things that are in your own wardrobe as the source of your fabric or buy things secondhand from charity shops then you know where it's come from um, even though that then you follow it back is <laughs> goes back to the fast fashion factories but you know that you're getting it from a second-hand source, I Yeah, guess. I mean, the, the, I used to work at the Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs like way back in the day, but the thing that we always used to say when... This was like when people had just started recycling, basically, in, yeah. in the kind of like wholesale world, and the, and the thing that we always used to say was reuse is better than recycle. I think yeah, that's exactly what I'm trying to do. But we're talking about fabric specifically. Fabric can be really, really pricey. We were talking about this on the podcast the other week about how like sometimes you decide, oh, I'm going to make a cheesecake for dessert rather than like buy a Marks and Spencer's one and it ends up costing you like 40 quid to make a cheesecake. So making your own clothes, I guess once you've invested in the patterns, you can use them again and again and again. And and the patterns are expensive, but you can obviously reuse them. But fabric can be quite pricey. And I wondered if you had any sort of tips for picking up cheap fabric. I've always sewed on a budget, like before sewing bee, I've always sewed on a budget because I was a teenager and then like I've always been a student. So I feel like I've always tried to buy (laughs) cheap fabric. I found... um, eBay is quite a good source and surprisingly eBay has a lot of like all the bits and pieces you need as well like zips and threads are the place like I always bought them from eBay (laughs) so that's quite good and sometimes people even sell like remnants of fabric that they have and so that's often a bit cheaper as well but you're right you so then there's bigger fabric stores that sell things for cheaper online like places like Minerva crafts and things like that but then obviously the more small and independent shops you go they get a bit more expensive but it's annoying because you want to support those businesses but it is hard yeah as you say it can get kind of expensive at the fabric and also like all the other things you need for the project and not only the pattern but like all the notions as such like the thread and the zip and if you need buttons and all that it all adds up like they seem cheap individually Mm. (laughs) but you put them together and they can end up being quite expensive okay so we've talked a little bit about repurposing clothes and and sustainability and that's obviously something that you you feel you know quite passionately about can you tell me a little bit more about what that means is that like getting a garment and altering it or is that just changing the whole thing completely to be honest it's both and anything in between it really depends what what the garment is that i'm using so sometimes it will be something that I really love that just doesn't fit me right so I can just adjust it and sometimes I'll find something in a charity shop or I'll have something in my wardrobe that I don't wear anymore but I love the fabric and I don't want to keep it in the same style but I want to use the fabric to make something else so that would be a bit of a bigger project and like completely changing the structure of something I guess so it's it's a bit of everything that's also why I've I've quite liked trying that in the past few years because it's also a very different way of sewing and it's a bit more free like you can do anything you Mm -hmm. want you're not following 
a specific set of instructions as to the final garment. You can kind of just make it up as you go along. So it's quite a nice way to explore like different styles and to try out different things. Um, do you think you have to be quite advanced to sort of do that kind of thing? Because that's the dream, isn't it? That you just pick something up and just kind of magic it into something that fits nicer. Yeah. Making big changes, like completely changing the structure, is a much more of an advanced thing than making things fit better. It's a very different way of thinking about sewing as well. But I think you're right, you do need to have a certain level of experience about different ways to sew things so you can kind of be a bit more inventive. So that's why when I put sort of upcycling or refashioning projects into the book, I only used garments that are readily available in places like charity shops or ones that I thought people would commonly have in their, their houses or, hmm. you know, friends and family might give it to them or whatever. So things like jeans or like men's shirts or a shift dress, something that I, I think is quite common so that I can give people the step-by-step instructions for how I thought about refashioning that so that people can get a bit of experience with it and then have an idea of how they might want to approach something that's maybe a bit more unique or has a bit of a different design. They have that structure behind them to build on. Some people like having the set of instructions and some people like being a bit more free with it, I guess. It just depends (laughs) how you think. So if you were scouring charity shops for things to repurpose... What is the best thing you can use? Like, what do you what do you think is the most useful or like best bang for your buck kind of an item that you can get your hands on? Um, something with a nice fabric. I think it always makes a difference if the fabric quality is nice. And so this this was one of the other things I did think about. So I'm quite small, so I didn't want to pick out a dress that's a size eighteen or twenty mm. and make something for me using that because that's not applicable. To everyone so I tried to use things that were my size that I could then make something for myself so it's sort of then everyone can have a go doing that but I usually go for things yeah that have a nice fabric or I really like the the pattern on the fabric and it's also easier if you find things that have a lot of fabric so like a floaty skirt or a dress like a maxi dress or something or a baggy top, so you obviously have a lot more fabric to work with and you're less restricted. Or you can sometimes buy two similar things and combine them. So I did that with one of the book projects, a little bag, and I used two different tops. One was green and one was polka dot print. Um, But I combined them into the one bag because they were very similar, like they felt quite similar, so it, it worked. I did a thing recently where I bought, I think it's Dalston Mill fabric. They're having a warehouse clearance or something like that. So you can buy like 15 metres of oh, gosh. whatever. Like basically it's like a lucky Oh, they dip. just give you random ones. Mm. And it's like yeah. 30 quid, which is which is really cheap for like 15 yeah. metres worth of fabric. So I was like, okay, well, I'll do that because then that's, you know, I can learn using mm. that fabric and not waste, you know, really nice stuff. Or... And then I got it and I was a bit like... Wow, these are <laughs> random. Uh, like, yeah. I, I don't think I would wear very many of these fabrics in, yeah. in any capacity. Are those things always a yep. bit like, uh, like, does it not end up being terribly good value? No, I think I've done that once and didn't do it again because I didn't like any of the fabrics that I got. And I do think like it tends to be the the ones that haven't sold that they give you. I just didn't think it was worth it because I didn't use them. I mm. ended up keeping them in my house for a couple of years and then 
gave them away or something or sold them. Yeah, it's cheaper, but yeah, I, I just wasted my money because I didn't use them. But I guess that was after I'd learned. So mm. I was making things that I really wanted to wear. So I guess if you are starting out learning and you're not bothered about the end result, like wearing it, you just want a bit of practice, then it might be a good shout for getting cheap fabric. Yeah. I know that you're at uni at the moment and you're studying medicine. What's yeah. next for you? Presumably you want to actually go into something medicine related or, or yeah. do you plan yeah. to use your sewing in any kind of like professional capacity? I don't know, maybe, maybe you'll be a surgeon. I don't, I don't know, but <laughs> shit jokes aside. Yeah. <laughs> what? Oh, don't worry. Everyone says I should be a surgeon. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Um, oh. These are questions that I'm also asking myself at the minute. I start need to start making some big decisions. So I, I've got one year left of medical school mm-hmm. and then I need to do my like junior doctor training in yeah. order to be a qualified doctor. So that will take two years. So at the moment, I'm not really sure how sewing is going to go alongside that because I'm obviously going to be really busy and really tired. So I don't want to end up doing too much. So I wrote the book last year alongside my medical degree full time and it was quite a lot. I didn't really know what I was getting myself in for when I um, decided to do it. And I I knew it would be really busy, but I couldn't give up the opportunity of writing a book. Um, So it was completely worth it. But by the end of the year, I was exhausted and I don't think I could keep going like that. I don't think it's good for me to keep going like that. I'll just burn out. So at the moment, I'm focusing on graduating mm-hmm. <laughs> and focusing on trying to get a, a good junior doctor job and I, I think I'm just going to see how I feel and see how much spare time I've got and I really enjoy doing sort of sewing workshops and stuff and I've done a few in Scotland now so I think I might keep doing some of those just to to keep enjoying it but I'm the short answer is I don't really know. <laughs> I'm trying to figure it out. Do you have any social media accounts so we can follow your creations? Yeah, I do. I have an Instagram. It's called Serena Sews. There's an underscore at the end. And yeah, I, I tend to post everything I've made on there. And actually, I, I got that Instagram way before I did anything with Sewing Bee. And it was a really nice way for me to interact with other people who sewed because as you said before, like doesn't tend to be a hobby that younger people have. So I don't really know people my age around my age that sewed and it was only once I joined Instagram with one dedicated to sewing that I actually like I learned a lot from it and I got a lot of inspiration from people Mm. that I followed and it was really nice talking to other people with the same hobby as well so it's obviously I've come on a bit since then and with the sewing bee and everything but I still love posting things that I've made and now interacting with people and that bought the book and now I can see people making the projects from it and it yeah it's just really nice. Serena Sews is out now published by Bonnier. I'm enjoying going through it and and looking forward to making some more creations soon. Serena thank you very much for taking the time to chat to me. Thanks for having me it's been really nice. Hello, Hannah here. I am joined by actress Jennifer Kirby, who rather brilliantly turned up early. <laughs> right and early. I'm interested. Now I've heard you talking, I was really interested what your accent was going to be, because I've seen you be a chirpy cockney. I've seen you be an American. And also you're from or originally from the same neck of the woods as I am. I'm from Newport Pagnell. I believe you were originally from Milton Keynes. Yes, that's right. And that doesn't really have an accent, does it? You tend to just sound like your parents, don't you? I was born in Milton Keynes. I lived there till I was nine. And I think when I was 
little I had a little bit of a sort of I always think Milton Keynes might have have a bit of a sort of estuary mm. twang a little bit of that and then I lived in the West Midlands the rest of my childhood and my parents are from the northeast so I don't think I ever like I never really took on an accent which is a weird thing to say because everyone has an accent but I think I watched loads of period dramas when I was little and I think that's stuck so now I just sound sort of vaguely posh <laughs> <laughs> now we're here to talk about vampire academy a peacock series which starts on sky this week which is i mean it's aimed at young adults isn't it yeah i think pretty much anyone could enjoy it the books that it's based on are young adult books and there's definitely you know that there's there's a lot of people in it that are 18 or are are playing 18 mm. so yeah it does have a sort of young adult vibe but it's quite rude. So, you know, <laughs> I think anyone can enjoy a lot of fighting. <laughs> You've been a young adult. What do you think the fascination is with teenage girls and vampires? Excuse the pun. I think it's high stakes. I think. <laughs> no, let's have more of them, Jennifer, more. I think teenage girls, and certainly from what I can remember, and I think as women, we always have, carry a bit of that with us I think we always keep our younger selves somewhere inside I think it's that intense kind of romantic dangerous exciting thing and I think also just anything that's a bit supernatural I think is is interesting I remember I was I was obsessed with Buffy mm. when I was growing up it, I think the show has a lot of similarities to Buffy actually it's got of a lot of that kind of humor but it's also quite dark and a bit sexy and yeah, I think it's that. Were you an angel or were you a spike person? Spike, but to be honest, the correct answer. I think, <laughs> yeah, I think I think mostly I'm realizing now in my adult life that it was always Giles for me. I I think I was just always <laughs> just what a perfect man. I just love him. <laughs> when I was a teenager, it was Am Rice stuff. Uh-huh. And there was there was a sort of southern dandy feel about them that I could never quite buy into but <laughs> but yeah there was definitely I think there is definitely something because it is to do with sex as well but it's, it's interesting because it just never goes away it's just vampires no. like then there was twilight that you know that now there are this series of books it's just a constant in teenage girls lives it was filmed in Spain yeah tell me did you get much chance to do much sightseeing you're in a really lovely castle from what I saw yeah it was gorgeous we were in um Pamplona most of the time which is in northern Spain but to be honest that we had such a hectic schedule that we and of course it being a vampire show we were filming mostly at night Mm. so it was all night shoots so we would have to kind of sleep through the day (laughs) and then work through the night so we didn't see uh we didn't get a chance to to look around all that much but the places that we filmed that castle that you're talking about is in a place called Elite which is just gorgeous it's like sort of something out of a fairy tale it's really really beautiful and beautifully preserved uh I've never filmed anything in Spain before I don't think I've ever filmed anything outside the UK before so it was it was quite different and and interesting as well that a lot of the crew and things weren't English speaking so that was sort of a challenge all of its own a lot of mm. things had to be translated and but yeah it was it was beautiful it was it was a real like learning curve and yeah that castle is amazing cold but amazing yeah. was it i mean peacock's an american company did you notice a difference i think 
Fundamentally, for me, maybe because it was filmed in Europe rather than in the US, I think it, it was similar. I would say the biggest difference for me was that obviously the budget is just a huge yeah. amount bigger. And I've never been part of something before that involves a lot of stunts and a lot of, you know, big crowd scenes that involve a lot of work behind the scenes and all of that kind of stuff. So the scale of it was definitely different for me. No, fundamentally in its sort of running, it was it was definitely the same. It was just the size of it was mm. certainly quite daunting. I had to get, get over that, I think. <laughs> you played the, I suppose we can essentially wrap up as the drill sergeant. Yeah. Did you have to do some fitness stuff before you started? I did. I, I took some boxing lessons before and also uh, the stunt team who were absolutely brilliant would often do sort of fitness regimes and stuff with us alongside teaching us all the stunt work where of course they come in and do the sort of main parts of it to make it look mm. very exciting and and professional we would still learn all of the routines so that we could film our little parts of it so yeah it was actually really it was pretty physical and I think it was quite a shock to my system because I've never had to do something like that before. And I definitely wouldn't say that I'm a, uh, I'm a stunt pro. It was quite something, but it was a challenge. It was good. Do you think you could make it through the training that you're dishing out? No, not a chance. <laughs> I just have to go and lie down somewhere, I think. <laughs> the role most people associate you with is Val in Call the Midwife. And I think the question everybody wants to know is, how many times did you nearly drop a baby? <laughs> Every time I see it and there's these tiny babies, they're all covered in goop. I'm just like, oh my God, how do they have the confidence to pick that up? That's an actual <laughs> newborn baby. I know, little a little greased up oik. <laughs> um, I think, to be honest, what's weird is, and I think a lot of people felt this, when you're holding the baby, you don't, you're not scared at all because you, you've got your hands on them and you're like, I know I've got this. It's fine. It's when you give them back and you sort of get this weird feeling where you think, oh, my God, I, I could have dropped that baby. And that's just, <laughs> I, I, what, what do I do? You sort of, it's like post. You, you get a very yeah. sort of odd kind of feeling. Um, but, yeah, happy to say. Never dropped one. Absolutely never <laughs> dropped one. I've got a full full record on that, hundred percent. They are funny, that little little uh, greased up. They they like the oil though. Terry, who is the midwife supervisor on set, had the job of kind of like greasing them up and making them look <laughs> a bit gooey. <laughs> and she would always sort of warm the oil up a bit and give them a bit of a massage. So actually, I think it's probably they probably quite like being all uh, nice and slippery. <laughs> it's a really interesting thing, isn't it, that people are prepared to give up their tiny babies into this sort of environment. And yeah, at a time where you're literally like, they're so precious, where even when your mum picks them up, people are like, be careful, mum. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm really impressed with people who can do that. I actually had um, a really lovely moment on set one time doing that because my mum had come with me uh, for a couple of days. I was doing a, a, a delivery scene in the shot was me and this and this tiny newborn and watching outside on the monitors was my mum and the the baby's mum my mum turned to the woman and said oh that's like that's both of our babies on the screen and it was quite a sort of amazing moment yeah like lots of different generations and seeing 
both of the babies. <laughs> <laughs> now, talking of different generations, I would like to talk about someone that you work with who I absolutely adore, or someone who you work with on Call the Midwife. I know she doesn't do a lot of interviews, so maybe this is the closest thing I'll get to doing an actual interview with her, which is Linda Bassett. She is oh, just yeah. incredible. I absolutely love Linda. I can say that with my whole heart. She is definitely one of, if not the best actor I've ever worked with. I think when you work with Linda, you realise that actually she's she's not acting. She's not an actor. She just is. She just is being the person. And, oh, I, I, I just have... I absolutely hero worship her. And I think when I started on Midwife, she was the person that I was actually most excited to meet. Mm. And she didn't disappoint. She's just an amazing person, kind person, I, I can't speak highly enough of her, really. She's just she's just truly wonderful. Yeah, she is absolutely terrific. And yeah, yeah there's a kind of... I mean, she's kind of similar in a way, I think, to the way I look at Pam Ferris, who was also in, in Call the Midwife at some point, have forged a career at a time where, you know, women are sort of expected to be really glamorous and have actively chosen non-glamorous roles in order to play, which I think is, yeah, really admirable, definitely. It certainly is. Yeah, and what a career, what a long and varied career yeah. and sort of proving that as hard as it is, and my God, it certainly is hard, you you, you can forge your own mm. path. You can sort of go against the ideas that, that are sort of put upon you of what you should be and uh, and what you shouldn't be. Hugely admirable, I think. Can I ask you what else you have on the horizon? Hopefully we'll get a series two of, yeah. uh, of Vampire Academy. I mean, fingers crossed that everyone needs to watch it. <laughs> yeah, back happen. to Spain so you get a break from the heat wave over here. <laughs> that's it, that's it. Head back to Spain, but that's it. So, yeah, I'm just sort of trying to use my time off to do kind of life things. Mm. Currently trying to buy an apartment with my with my partner, which I've never done before. So, yeah, that's kind of taking Oh, man, the paperwork. Oh my God, it just never ends. It uh, yeah. never ends. It's so stressful. <laughs> yeah. So in a way, I'm quite happy that that's kind of my, uh, that's my main focus at the moment. I don't have to stress about anything else. <laughs> You've done a lot of stuff with the Royal Shakespeare Company over the years. Mm-hmm. Is, is there still a role in Shakespeare that you're desperate to play? Hmm. You know what? I think when I finished at the RSC, uh, however long ago it was, I sort of had felt like I wanted to kind of move on mm. a little bit from it. But Oh my! I'd absolutely love to go back, and I think the beauty of it is that there's there's so much potential. There's so many different parts. I wonder who it is that I would like to play the most. That's a good. That is a good question. I don't know. It's funny to realise that actually maybe I will not play Juliet. I think somebody said to me once that it's weird when you get to a certain age as a as an actress and think maybe I won't actually play Juliet because you know you you, yeah. you always have this idea in your head that maybe you will and yeah perhaps I won't I really love Joan of Arc mm. in Henry the Sixth yeah I would I would like to play her and uh Beatrice yeah yeah love a classic bit of Beatrice. <laughs> yeah 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 but really I'll say I mean if anyone wants to yeah anything I'll, I'll take i'll take on very much anything. <laughs> i just wondering about lady macbeth who i actually saw uh, ruth negger play again i was in new york over the summer and and i saw her there but um mm. is there a, or have you done lady macbeth already no no i i haven't i mean i've done bits and pieces of her at drama school and things i it's a obviously it's a brilliant character i think 
I've seen it done so many times. Mm. That's the thing. So I, I have started to be kind of like, I think a bit like I always wanted to play Ophelia. And then I've seen it so much now that I sort of feel like, I don't know. I mean, I, I definitely could bring something new to it, but I think I have such a warped idea of it now because of all the times I've seen it. I, I wouldn't want to sort of, I would want to come to it fresh, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I feel like that as a because my dad was obsessed with Shakespeare, so we saw mm. a lot of TV stuff and 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 smaller. I mean, you knew you know where I grew up. There wasn't a great deal of theatre there, so smaller <laughs> yeah. stuff. Now I have got to the point where I'm like, there's a few like Midsummer Night's Dream. I don't feel like I ever need to watch again unless somebody yes. amazing is in it. You know, I mean, yeah. I had felt like that with Hamlet, but uh, but then I thought, oh no, I would like to see a woman play Hamlet. That is something I could get on board with. And like I say, I saw somewhat Beth in New York, but that was largely because it had Daniel Craig in it and I was curious to see what he'd do with Macbeth. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and he was good. But yeah, there does get to be a point where where you think, how many more times can roles be reimagined or redone? And actors must feel, how can I really make a mark on this role given, you know, yes. the competition? Um, yes, yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. And like, I, I'm always open to seeing, I would love to see it sort of, really blow me away and and think well I've never seen anything like that before but I think it's it, it's quite rare these days mm. because I think it's just been done so many times I I, I did see um Maxine Peake's Hamlet oh right yes um, I remember thinking that they because they sort of gender swapped a lot of the roles and I remember that um there's a woman playing Polonius and so Ophelia having a mother in it instead of a father yeah. was really interesting. Like their relationship, it being a woman really changed the dynamic mm. of the relationship. And it made me think quite differently about those characters. So that's the last time I can remember that happening. You know, mm. I looked at it in a, in a completely different way. Um, and of course, obviously Maxine Peake was brilliant. Yeah. 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 Yeah, Mickey went to see it and I was jealous because I didn't get to go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm actually going to see Giles Torreira be Othello at the National later <laughs> in the year. Um, but I just love him. So, uh, you know, I watch him do literally anything. So, anything. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but no more Midsummer Night's Dream. Jennifer, this has been brilliant. Thank you ever so much for your time. Vampire Academy starts this week on Sky. So, yeah, fingers crossed you get a second series. Fingers crossed. <laughs> You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks, that time of the week where we plunge into the deep end of debate as we discuss all things women's sport. Not much to debate in our opening offering, news that a swimming cap designed for Afro hair has been approved for use in top tier competitions. The sole cap, which you might remember was banned from last year's Olympics, has been specially designed to cover thick curly hair as well as styles such as dreadlocks and braids. According to FINA, the sport's governing body, the decision follows a period of review and discussion between FINA and Soulcap over the past year. It followed that by stating promoting diversity and inclusion is at the heart of FINA's work. Hang on, FINA who last year said that the caps didn't follow and I quote the natural form of the head? That FINA? Okay, I would argue that it is very much not at the heart of your work if it took a year of conversation to get this over the line. It's an absolute no-brainer and I cannot believe it's even been a question. Still, this is unequivocally good news, so let's take that. 
onwards to the announcement that there will be a review of women's football. Now, this announcement was actually about 10 days ago, but it wasn't discussed at the time and it is very much worth picking up now. Karen Carney will lead the review, which the government said will look at how to deliver bold and sustainable growth of the women's game at elite and grassroots level. There'll be a particular focus on assessing the audience reach and growth, examining the financial health of the game and the structures within women's football. I'm always a little bit cynical about these things. For example, what happened to Tracy Crouch's recommendations regarding the men's game, which were made some time ago now? However, there can be no harm in addressing these issues and continuing to shine a light on the sport. After the Lionesses' Euro victory this summer, I think there's a real danger that we just drift back to business as usual and that will be a tragedy after all that has been achieved. While we're on the subject of growth, let's look at some new stats from the Women's Sports Trust, which found that TV audiences for women's sport have doubled from 2021 to 2022. While 36.1 million people watch women's sport compared to the 17.5 million in the equivalent period in 2021, that figure is bolstered enormously by, you guessed it, England's Euro win, which reached a peak audience of 17.4 million. Here's the kicker, though, no pun intended. Just 16% of coverage hours were dedicated to women's sport on BBC One and Two, Channel 4, ITV and Sky Sports main event. And so my answer to that, much like the age old women can't fill stadiums debate slash bullshit, is that how can more people watch women's sports when the amount of coverage is so shockingly disparate to the men's? Women can't fill stadiums if they're not allowed to play in them and we can't watch women's sport if it's not on TV. Karen, you can put that in your consultation, please. Let's end with another piece of great news, which is that world number one Iga Swiatek won the US Open and therefore her second Grand Slam title of the year. She beat Tunisian Ons Jabeur, who was also the fifth seed, and she's had an incredible year too. She won in straight sets, 6-2, 7-6 to take the crown at Flushing Meadows. We've not seen a double Grand Slam winner in a calendar year on the women's side since, you guessed it, Serena Williams, who bowed out in the third round of this year's tournament, we suspect, for good. Nonetheless, Sviantec's victory makes me very excited for the future of women's tennis. That's all for me this week. I'll be back next time with more women's sport. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Jen, which film, which reminded me how genuinely tiny, really tiny Danny DeVito is, did we watch this week? This week we watched 1997 neo-noir LA Confidential. The film, based on James Elroy's novel of the same name, was directed, produced and co-written by Curtis Hansen, who you may remember from other Rated or Dated classics, such as I'm Okay... Both my legs are broken. (laughs) (laughs) The hand that rocks the cradle. I believe we actually, in that, said, I can't believe this dude went on to do LA Confidential, but there we are. I think I flagged his eclectic career at the time. So, uh, yeah, the hand that rocks the cradle. Man, that guy did some personal and professional growth in five years, didn't he? Yep bankrolling the entire Australian in Hollywood community at the time. (laughs) The film stars Guy Pearce and Russell Crowe as two sides of the LAPD policing coin, or are they? Edmund Exley and Wendell Bud White. 
Bonus points if you spotted Simon Baker as ill-fated honey trap Matt Reynolds, who you'll know best as your man from The Mentalist, and as I prefer, the teacher from Home and Away. Just FYI, Crow is actually from New Zealand and has New Zealand citizenship. I know this, the producers of the film, who were nervous about the decision to cast the pair, apparently did not. Both Pierce and Crow were relatively unknown at the time, but if you like big names, there's plenty more to see here. Kim Bassinger, Danny DeVito and uh, Kevin Spacey. Not forgetting, (laughs) of course, kindly farmer Hoggett, James Cromwell, as not-so-kindly Captain Dudley Smith. I'm being facetious, Cromwell is in everything, literally everything. His filmography is crazy. Right, where do I start on the plot? Yeah, good luck. It's 1953. There be gangsters and police, the LAPD to be precise. There's Hollywood, a gossip magazine run by Danny DeVito, a brothel of sorts of women who've undergone plastic surgery to look like Hollywood starlets. At someone else's behest, I should probably add there. There's heroin. A few solved slash unsolved murders and a metric shit ton of corruption, which model copper Exley and very troubled soul White must navigate their way through past Smith to get to the truth. But can they get to it without selling their souls? That is probably the best I can do for you unless you want to be here until my 41st birthday (laughs) the film did well it made 126 million dollars from a budget of 35 million it has a 99 percent approval rating on rotten tomatoes and the critics loved it roger ebert who's now our running cinematic barometer gave it four out of four stars but of course he fucking did it was also nominated for nine academy awards but unfortunately you know titanic was just better yeah i mean i'd argue with that but okay i don't think that the academy thought it it only won two of those nine best supporting actress for kim bassinger for her turn as i'm saying this in heavily inverted commas tart with a heart lynn and best adapted screenplay for hansen and brian hageland it was also selected for preservation in it's been a while since any of us have said this yeah. for preservation in the u.s national film registry as culturally historically or aesthetically significant it's an historic crime film but it's more than a whodunit and it delves deep into the personality and psychology of its characters something which Hansen said initially attracted him to it while reading the novel he didn't much like the characters he said but you couldn't help end up feeling for them perhaps this is something we can discuss Hannah so you've seen this before I have yeah so who do you feel for the most well I think that's interesting because if you're looking at the two main characters, Bud White, which is Russell Crowe, and Ed Exley, which is Guy Pearce, they both have a kind of clear moral code, even if their clear moral code isn't the same. But mm. they both go about doing what they're doing in the worst possible way. I mean, Exley is the one that you should empathise with because he's also had a childhood trauma and he's mm. trying to live up to his father and he's trying to do the right thing, which is not fit up like Mexicans or black people for crimes. and Not for very fucking long, though. <laughs> he doesn't try for very long. Well, I mean, he once he knows that he's made a mistake and the wrong people have been killed, he attempts to try and find yes. out who really did it. And he actually is the one who grasses them all up for beating the people up in custody. But at the same time, he's also got his eye on the prize. So he is morally complicated because is he doing it because... He genuinely believes these things or is he doing it because 
by pretending to believe those things. He can go up the ladder, as it were, and he does shoot up the ladder. Whereas Bud White, the Russell Crowe character, he has that kind of loyalty, which is seen as a positive thing. But when your colleagues are doing terribly racist shit, you know, do you deserve that loyalty? But at the same time, he's terribly loyal to the men around him because he also had this terribly massive trauma. So I think it's actually really interesting because neither of them are particularly likable, but both of them kind of want to do the right thing. They just don't agree on what the right thing is. I think you do root for both of them, don't you? Oh, I definitely root for them, yeah. Because they're not as bad as the other guys. Oh, fuck no. The problem is, obviously, the bleakness of the ending, which is clearly that Exley is going to end up as bad as the other guys, isn't he? Is he? I don't know. Is he going to go in and clear up? I don't know. Historically, by what we know about subsequent incidents with the LA police force, it wasn't cleaned up. So, yes, but that said, you know, he does uncover this terrible thing because he wants to clear those blokes' names because he's killed them and he didn't mean to kill them. Or, no, he did mean to kill them, but he didn't. Actually, I don't even know if he meant to kill them. He initially was like, don't shoot. I think he just panicked, didn't he? was my reading of it. He yeah. didn't, I don't think he meant to. And then in fairness, one of them did shoot his other cop. So, I mean, you can see yeah. how, this is why we shouldn't have guns, guys. Exactly. This is why we shouldn't have guns. I think there is a middle ground, isn't there? And the middle ground is Jack Vincent, but unfortunately he's played by Kevin Spacey. So I actually kind of blanked him out. Because I, <laughs> I know what his plot is. I just kind of blanked him out. I want to come back to him in just a minute, but I just want to say that I saw while I was researching this, which I think is interesting, when you said about what happens to the LAPD later mm. on down the line, they had planned oh, a, a sequel, a sequel yeah, to this. Chad, Chadwick Boseman. But obviously he died and it hasn't happened, so I don't know if it will happen, but I think it was supposed to be set in 1974. I, I read an interview with Guy Pearce in which he said that it was apparently too expensive, what the plans they had for it was just, it didn't, it just didn't pan out because... It was too ambitious, too expensive. You know, if you're going to do a a sequel to this, you've got to do it right, haven't you? And right apparently was beyond the budget that people were. I think possibly because I don't know the time we're at now, how people feel, particularly in America, how a lot of people feel about the police, Mm. that maybe, maybe a film that was sympathetic to people who weren't necessarily the best guys would be not particularly well received. I'd love to know what happened to their characters, though, as an aside. Yeah. Kevin Spacey, but you'd you'd said to me that it was going to be a real test of separating the Mm. artist from the art, given what we know now of Kevin Spacey. And I said to my mum as we were watching it, it's really hard to watch him, isn't he? Because he's so sleazy in it as well. He's such a slimeball, I think, in, in the film. It is quite hard to watch him. How did you feel about it? Did he make you scream and scream and scream into the sky or did you just... I mean, you don't need to like... Jack, which helps. You don't need to like him for the no, plot. No, he's gross. Yeah. yeah. So that's fine. Were, were he playing the Russell Crowe character or the Guy Pearce character, I may have struggled a bit more with it. And actually, the best scene that he's in is the scene with James Cromwell, where, spoiler alert, Cromwell shoots him. You know, so actually, he ends up dead at the, <laughs> at the end of the best scene. So, you know, it, in that way, it, it, you're like, yay, that was great. But he's also, you know not going to be in it anymore so so great because that is a real shock when that happens the first time I think when you see it 
I think what helps is that this actually has a really fucking great cast, so much so that he doesn't really matter. I am no. indifferent to him. I mean, you mentioned most of the people, but also I want to say uh, David Strathairn, who plays Pierce Patchett in it, is also great. I think Guy Pierce is fucking mentally good in this. So brilliant. He does a lot of cheek acting, as all I can explain it as, where he does that thing where he, you can see him biting, so you can see his mm. cheek flicking and there's the great bit where uh, where Cromwell says to him what Spacey has said as he's dying which is the name Rolo Tomasi and you see Guy Pearce react but but also not react at the same time and it's brilliant because we know that he is suppressing absolutely every thought that he's had yeah. and all that happens is his pupils get a tiny bit bigger and he gets this tiny wobble at the side of his cheek and then he carries on as normal and yeah he's brilliant genuinely brilliant in this I think I've got a lot of time for Guy Pearce in general, to be fair. I think he is a really good actor. I'm sad that he doesn't seem to make more stuff these days. Yeah. But the other interesting thing about Spacey is, I mean, this film is about the dark side of the American dream. And Kevin Spacey himself is the dark side of the American <laughs> dream. So it kind of fits in, doesn't it? it it's about yeah. corruption. It's about, you know people being treating women appallingly it's about the way that they talk about people who are gay or black or any of those things in this and therefore that feels like a like I say a film that Spacey is strangely fitted to yeah and and not actually in it that long I don't think really no he's not it's an, it's definitely like an ensemble cast isn't it he doesn't do loads and loads of notes I wanted to ask you what you thought about Bassinger because I thought she was great in it mm. and what I also thought was quite interesting she's 43 in this film which is quite a bit older than you would expect the woman playing the sort of like sexy lead if you will yeah. the sexy female lead to be I was kind of surprised to learn that yeah and therefore I would guess if she's supposed to be 43 in it I don't know if she is or not I mean probably at least a decade older than either Ed or Bud are supposed to yeah. be because they're both as being quite sort of young and hot-headish and at the start yeah. of their careers. Yeah, I think she's absolutely terrific in it. And I think the one thing, apart from Spacey, that I thought, oh, how am I going to feel about this, is the domestic violence plotline. But actually, I think it's dealt with pretty well in as much as... You know, the worst thing that some people that people can do is get involved quite often. Do you know what I mean? That what Bud is doing by going and like getting these blokes that beat their wives and beating them up in many ways will or mm. would have made it worse for that woman. But actually, because it explains why he's like mm. this and gives him this sort of in, this motivation that means that actually, from the very start, he knew that getting involved was a really bad thing to do and it only ended worse. He just can't stop himself from doing it. I think it handled that plot line pretty well, actually. I know you're not big into this sort of thing, but that shootout at the end is fucking epic. It's like one of the best. It's like proper up there with Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid ending shootout to something. It's incredible. The first time I watched it, I genuinely thought, holy shit, one or both of them are going to die in this. This is terrible. And because of the tone of the film is so sort of bad guys win and terrible things happen, it seemed possible to me that one or both of them might die in that. I, I was watching it a bit like Brenda from Bristol, just like, not another one? Every time another person <laughs> popped up with a gun. But no, it's pretty, it's, it is good, even though it's not 
my kind of thing. I thought that it really sort of captured that kind of classic Hollywood studio noir mm. kind of that's me being a saxophone kind of yeah oh it's it's Elroy it's James Elroy isn't it so yeah it's got all of that and it's got really muted tones in it as well which yeah. really look 50s yeah it's like aesthetically very pleasing and she is gorgeous oh my god she is gorgeous and Guy Pearce is gorgeous yeah. like genuinely they both look so beautiful she's amazing I was just looking at her like big red painted on lips and I was just like mm. what the fuck I was completely mesmerised I was going to ask how do you think it treats women more generally but I don't there aren't really any other women in it other than prostitutes and women who are being beaten up and very much victims yeah i mean i agree with you on that it's one of these films that it doesn't seem odd that there aren't more women in it because there wouldn't necessarily have been more women in it in fact had there been more women in the la police force perhaps it wouldn't have been the terrible institution that it was Mm. yeah but it's the 1950s and women were treated as you know eye candy and not much else I don't know where you would put a female character in that was... Because there's a lot of pressure on, on Kim Basinger because she is basically all women in this, isn't she? Mm. But to, to me, it didn't seem particularly... You know, it's it's about corruption and corruption, you know, is largely a man's world, isn't it? Can I get away with saying that? Yeah, I think you can because they run it, don't they? So if it's corrupt, then it's their responsibility. Yeah. So, Hannah, I think I know where you stand on this, but in time on a tradition, rated or dated? Yeah, rated. I would agree. I'd say it's rated. What I would say is it was very bleak. Hmm. It was very bleak. (laughs) Yeah. And I possibly wasn't in the mood for the bleakness that ensued. Uh, This sounds like a terrible thing to say because it sounds like I'm looking for positives when, in fact, there are loads of positives. But it was definitely shorter than I thought it was going to be I thought (laughs) oh this is like three hours long isn't it like I can settle down and this is a whole evening taken by this and I was surprised when it only turned out to be I think it might be two hours long that is actually quite that is quite a positive thing if they feel like they've got more in in a shorter time frame than I thought that they had so yeah anyway I think it was a good pick Jen thanks I mean, I thought you would because I knew you've 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 said before, possibly when we we're talking about yeah. the hand that rocks the cradle, what a good film yeah. it is. So Mickey's back with us next week, and Hannah, I believe you know what she has selected. I do. You know, Mickey doesn't like black and white films yeah. or doesn't like old films. She's picked Singing in the Rain. I'm not sure if that is black and white, but it's definitely old. It is old. <laughs> Standard issue for all women.